All right, how are you all doing this morning? Heard you having lots of fun? Okay. So I'm going to talk for about 30 minutes about strategies and why we're winning in the pro-life movement, um, where I see us going in the pro-life movement, but then we'll also have question, time for your questions. Just warning, I have some weird things. So my eyes are both bloodshot and my face is swollen on the right side. So I did put makeup on for you today for the first time in a week. But no mascara, I don't look like my normal self. So lay off the Instagram pictures of my face, please. Uh, we have a Students for Life. Uh, our leadership, our fellows are actually here this weekend. So I'm gonna give them the very same presentation later. Uh, and warning of no pictures of Kristen's face. Um, so, you know, when I think about the pro-life movement, um, and I, I think about where we've come and where we're going in the pro-life movement, I often think of um, that tortoise and a hare fable. We homeschool our children. My husband is actually uh, the educator in my home. And my son, my oldest son's favorite class is Fables. I think it's because he just gets to listen. He doesn't have to write. He just gets to talk. Uh, I, I'm on to him. Um, but I heard them a few months ago, in January actually, they were talking about the tortoise and the hare. What does the, what does the story of the tortoise and the hare teach us? Do you all remember the story of the tortoise and the hare? Uh, we had to explain to Gunnar what a hare was. First of all, it's a rabbit, in case you're wondering, I uh, don't know. But you know, what we remember with that story, right, is that the hare is mocking the tortoise, um, is making fun of him for being slow. Uh, and so the tortoise finally gets upset, like, I can't deal with you anymore. I'm challenging you to a race. And the hare agrees, thinking that he is going to kick the tortoise's ass because he's a rabbit and this is a tortoise. Um, but what happens is, because you know the hare is overly confident, the hare stops in the middle of the race, takes a nap, wakes up to find the tortoise has passed him, and by the time the hare wakes up, rejoins the race, it's too late, he is lost. And the tortoise, the slow and steady tortoise, tortoise wins the race. Do you remember that? Okay. This is how I, I kind of think of our pro-life movement. In 1973, and you know, just a couple blocks from here, when the U.S. Supreme Court handed down Roe versus Wade and Doe versus Bolton. By the way, that was seven men who handed down Roe versus Wade and Doe versus Bolton. Apparently, liberals don't care that it was seven men who handed down Roe versus Wade. But if it's in pro-life men voting for pro-life laws, we really care about gender. But that's another speech. Um, when, when the Supreme Court, when those seven men handed down Roe and Doe, we challenged the hare to the race. And we are the tortoises in the story, by the way, as pro-pipers, uh, in case you didn't know. We are the slow and steady folks. Um, we didn't have you know, all the resources that the pro-abortion industry had. We didn't have the media on our side. We didn't have polling on our side in the 1970s. And even into the, you know, the early 1990s, we didn't have polling on our side, to say the majority are on our side. Um, we didn't have you know, uh, sophisticated organizations in place that were well-funded. We didn't have a whole lobbying campaign or an election campaign. We had to start from the ground up. We had to start from zero, right? Uh, but we lost, but we but we we challenged that hair uh, to that race because we knew we couldn't stop, right? That um, despite what the Supreme Court said, despite what those seven men said, that we couldn't be silent because this is a human rights issue. In fact, I would argue and I would I would argue any day of the week that this is the human rights issue. There is no greater human rights issue in our world today, in America today, than the issue of abortion. Nothing kills more people every single day in our nation than abortion. Um, so we didn't stop. We couldn't stop. And we were the slow tortoises for a long time. Meanwhile, kind of along the, the way, and as the years passed on, Planned Parenthood 
uh, the abortion industry, they kind of got lazy resting on their laurels. They had a U.S. president and President Clinton who was, you know, so extreme on his views of abortion. He vetoed twice the partial birth abortion legislation. They kind of, you know, they started putting money into politicians' pockets. They got kind of lazy. They took their nap. But we kept at it in the pro-life movement. We kept educating people, kept talking about people. We became those, you know, annoying people at the dinner table. Have you ever had like someone tell you stop talking about politics at the family dinner table? If you haven't, you're not doing something right, by the way. Because that's what you're called to do, is to become those annoying people. You know, the ones with the bumper sticker on your car, the t-shirt, and like when you walk in the room, people are like, oh no, here comes the girl going to talk to me about abortion. I'm like the worst person, by the way, to invite to a dinner party, because I will talk about religion, I will talk about politics, and I will talk about abortion. Like the three things you are never, and now I'm talking about gender, so it's like four things, it's like you can't talk about those at all. But that's who we became. We became kind of those annoying people who wouldn't shut up. Despite the fact that we were behind in the race, despite the fact that we didn't have all the advantages that the hair had, like government-funded entities like Planned Parenthood, we didn't give up. And people like Nellie Gray, the founder of the March for Life, who, by the way, was a Democrat, was working for Democrats in Congress when she launched the March for Life. Joe Shiver, the, the kind of the founder of street activism, the pro-life movement. Jack Wilkie, the first president of National Right to Life. Phyllis Shafley, the founder of Eagle Forum. Because of those people who are willing to stand up, who are willing to be courageous, who, are, who refuse to be silent, even when everyone was telling them to sit down and shut up, that they were in the minority, because of them, today, our movement is strong. And it's growing. It's alive. Because they fought against all odds. And today, our pro-life movement is in a sweet moment. A very sweet moment. Our poll that we at Students for Life conducted this January proves it. When told what Roe v. Wade actually does in three sentences, the majority of our generation rejects Roe v. Wade and actually believes it should be reversed. That's not something you heard in the Democratic debate. In fact, last night, Someone was saying that the majority support Roe vs. Wade. Oh yeah, they support Roe vs. Wade unless you tell them what Roe vs. Wade was. I love how people have opinions on things, but they have no idea what those things are. It's fascinating and scary all at the same time. Our generation rejects abortion. The youth generation rejects abortion. And that's a powerful moment, because when you look at the history of social reform, in our country, any time there's, there's been mass cultural change in our country, it's come when young people join. Because young people are the cultural trendsetters. Politicians look to you. They look to our generation. They want to know what our generation, how we feel, how we think about certain issues. That's how they actually inform their opinions on things because they want your vote. We are the cultural trendsetters. And to know that young people, the majority of young people, the majority of our generation, reject taxpayer-funded abortions, yet every single one, every single one of the candidates running for president in the Democratic ticket have publicly declared that they believe taxpayers of all religions, of all beliefs, should fund abortions. That's a long-standing principle since 1976 that we've had in our nation that taxpayers shouldn't be funding abortion. In fact, over 70% of millennials agree that taxpayers shouldn't be funding abortions. So we had a sweet moment. Have you guys noticed it? Like, pro-life is talked about all the time. Abortion is talked about all the time. 
We are truly the pro-life generation. And what's most exciting to me and what we've seen in the past few months is that we actually are the post-Roe generation. We will be the generation that lives in a post-Roe America. Because Roe versus Wade is finished. The end of Roe is coming. So, so we're on our way. We're on our way to victory. The challenge we have before us ladies, I think there's two gentlemen, is that the hair is woken up. Planned Parenthood is woken up. Did you all watch what happened uh, the day Justice Kavanaugh was confirmed to the Supreme Court? <clears throat> Did any of you watch it? What was the takeaways that you saw from that? Were people happy? No! They were cursing and chanting. Did you all see the video of the women clawing at the doors of the Supreme Court? You watch that? Just wait. That's nothing compared to what's coming. Those who advocate for abortion, those who advocate for a culture of death, understand that the end of legal abortion is coming. The row is going to fall. And by the way, I want to explain to you what that means. When Roe falls, when Roe is reversed, what, will, what that will mean is that will mean the decision of abortion will go back to every state. That doesn't mean that abortion will be made illegal in every single state instantly. That will mean the states will actually have the right. Citizens will actually be able to have a voice in the vote for life. About nine states will instantly make abortion legal. There will be about 15 states the pro-life movement will engage in immediately to make abortion legal. And then we'll go state by state by state to continue on our mission of making abortion illegal, but also unthinkable at the same time. But what you saw at the Supreme Court, the day Justice Kavanaugh was confirmed, that's nothing compared to what's coming. That's nothing compared to what you're going to see in this leading up to this presidential election cycle. What you're going to see on campuses. The hair's woken up. Have any of you been vandalized on your campuses? Your displays? A lot of ours have. You want to know what the most angering thing you can do on a college campus is? Put pink crosses into the ground. Put a cross in the ground representing babies who've died from abortion. We've done flags, we've done baby shoes, but the crosses really make them mad. Cross is a very typical graveyard thing. We've done Stars of David. No one will touch those. Some schools have done crescents as well. But those, the crosses, make people angry. So if you want to be vandalized and you want to get on rep art, put pink crosses representing at one cross for every baby Planned Parenthood will board. It's about 910 a day. In your, we actually have them at Students Life. We'll send them to you for free. Uh, but you, you will get your day uh, in the media for sure. They're angry. They feel like they have nothing left to lose. That is why, that's why we're seeing the level of hatred we're seeing on college campuses. The level, we have the most recorded attacks on Students for Life you know, events or free speech since President Trump was elected president. In May, my last speaking stop on a college campus on my Lies Feminist Tell tour, my banner with my face on it was lit on fire while it was still attached to the building. I mean, clearly these people are unhinged. They're setting banners on fire that are attached to buildings that could have like caused actual fire to an entire <laughs> building. They, have, they feel like they have nothing left to lose. And when your opponent feels like they have nothing left to lose, that's a dangerous position to be in. That's an important position to be in because it means you are going to have to fight back harder than them. You are going to have to care more. You will have to be ready and willing to engage in that battle. 
Are you ready to do that? Are you really prepared? Because they see it. Planned Parenthood and NARAL, they see what's coming. That's why they've gone so left. That's why they've gone so extreme, right? Because they're trying to, they're trying to win people over to their side. That's why we have to continue to expose their extremism. The fact that only 7% in our poll that we released in January, only 7% of millennials agree with the Democratic National Committee's platform of abortion, which is abortion whenever, wherever, and taxpayer funded in all nine months. Only 7% agree. So this hair is woken up. The hair knows it's going to lose, and it's giving everything it, it's got to, to beat us, to beat us to that finish line. You don't have to look if you don't leave me on vandalizations, and trust me, you should do the process, because that'd be fun. Look at social media, right? Just this week, the Google executive came out saying that they they have a role to play in stopping Donald Trump in 2020. The fact that every time I tweet now, I don't know if anyone calls me on Twitter, but every time I tweet now, it says potentially sensitive content on everything I tweet. Even if I'm like complaining about the airline. It's why live action was banned from Pinterest. But we, don't worry, we posted all live action stuff on our Pinterest just to get them back. Um, why are, why are they going to such lengths? Why is social media giants, digital media giants, going to such lengths to silence us? To shut us up? Because they're afraid. Right? So what do we have to do? Where do we need to go? Alright, the first thing you have to do is you have to believe. First thing you have to do is you need to be able to, in your mind's eye, See an America without Roe versus Wade. See an America without abortion. What does that look like? What is needed? What is needed on your campus and in your community to make sure no woman ever again feels like she has to choose between the life of her child and her education or her career? Because I'll tell you what, Planned Parenthood is there telling her she can't. The abortion lobby is there telling her, you're not strong enough. We, the pro-life movement, pro-lifers, are the ones saying, yes, you can. It may be hard, but yes, you can. We are the ones with the positive, affirming message. But you have to first be able to envision in your mind what America looks like without abortion. And you actually have to believe that it's possible. Because until you believe it's possible, you won't work to make it possible. The other side believes in their minds, they believe in their hearts that the end of Roe is coming. And that's why they're acting crazy and they're going to continue to act crazy. Do we actually, on the other side, believe that as well? Do you? So first thing you have to do is kind of a gut check. Do you believe in a nation without abortion? A nation without Roe versus Wade? The second thing I think we, we need to talk about is how do we end campus abortions? Because abortions are happening right where you are. Every single day. What can you do on your campus to eliminate that perceived need for abortion? Do any of you go to school in California? So SB 24, we've been lobbying against SB 24 the past two years. We were there. I testified a, a month and a half ago. SB 24 is going to demand that every single one of the state university schools dispense RU 46, the abortion pill, on campus. And that's not going to just stop in California. We need, if we want to build a wall, we need to build a wall around California, first of all. There, I just had a meeting with a guy running for Senate in Arizona, like Arizona's screwed now, Colorado's screwed because you guys keep exporting yourselves to other states. You voted crappy policies in your state, you bankrupted your state, and then you moved to other states because you can't afford to live in your state. Ugh. 
We need a wall around California. Just lock everyone in. It's a great place. I love to go, but ugh. But that campus abortion bill is going to be passed. Last year it was passed, and the pro-choice governor vetoed it because because he knows the, he knew the liability. Because you know women are dying and bleeding out on toilet seats on college campuses. That's not going to be great for PR. Um, the pro-abortion governor now. Gavin Newsom has already pledged to sign into law, so it's going to pass. And we're, I've had meetings with DOJ today, I mean, it's just all about your state. Thank you. Sorry. I, I'm sorry to attack California, but I'm really up with California. But that's not going to stop in California. They've already said it's a beta test. They want to take this bill, and they want to take the college campuses across the country. They want to turn every single college campus into an abortion facility. Why? Because abortion numbers are on decline. Girls don't want to go into the dirty, filthy abortion facilities. The standalone abortion facilities are a thing in the past. There's fewer freestanding abortion facilities there are today than the past 30 years. The numbers keep continuing to decline. And so when Planned Parenthood opened up their mega abortion facility here in D.C., uh, they had like a whole like Washington Post style section right up on how beautiful and modern their baby killing place was. But what can you do on your campuses? It's students type of a program called Pregnant on Campus. And it's all about finding resources. Often there are resources on your campus. Your campus has a Title IX coordinator. He or she probably doesn't know much about Title IX because probably like the fifth duty that they have. But find out who that Title IX coordinator is. Start educating girls on your campus. You know, everyone knows where to go get the, their condoms. Everyone knows where to go get their birth control freshman orientation weekend. Does anyone tell her where to go if she's pregnant? Every single student that we work with who's pregnant on college campus has to go from office to office to office to office to try to find accommodations. One office for parking. One office for housing. One office for financial aid. And often it's the Students for Life members who kind of chaperone her and walk her through these offices. What can you do on your campuses to make it easier on her? To actually give her a choice? Because one thing we know, one thing we know for sure for women who choose abortion is they will say it wasn't a choice. It was either me or my baby. I couldn't do both. I had no, no other choice, no other option. And we know as conservatives, as people who care about conservative policy, if we want to make sure she doesn't live in poverty, if we want to make sure her child doesn't live in poverty, the best thing we can do for her is to make sure she gets her degree. Because a child born into poverty is seven times more likely to live in poverty his or her whole life. But often, the only thing she hears on her campus is have an abortion or drop out. There was a girl, our, our Students for Life group met her on a college campus in Colorado. She missed finals because she was, you know, giving birth. The school told her because she, was, she missed finals that she didn't qualify for financial aid. We wrote a letter and was like, hey, there's this thing called like Title IX, can't discriminate against pregnant people. Um, pregnant people, do you like that phrase now, by the way? It's no longer pregnant women. You can't use the word pregnant women uh, because no, women aren't the only ones that get pregnant. I'm informed all the time. Um, that's, that's a whole nother lecture. Um, but yeah, so we, we wrote a letter to school and they're like, oh, yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah, you have to have your financial aid. But then what they didn't do to Ruth is they wouldn't let her retake her exams. So she missed her final exams because you know she was like giving birth to another freaking human being. And while they took away her financial aid, they reinstated it, but then they said, yeah, but you can't retake your final exams. So your six credit hours you worked for this semester are gone. So now Ruth is a child, who's a one and a half year old, working three jobs, trying to pay the school to pay off her loan for the six credit hours she took that she didn't get credit for because they wouldn't let her take the exams. And by the time she figured out she had the right to ask for them to make accommodations to let her take the exams, they said it was too late. 
This happens over and over again. What are you doing on your campuses to eliminate that perceived need for abortion? Third thing you've got to do, so you're going to envision, you're going to end campus abortions, you have to stop Planned Parenthood's influence on our generation. Stop Planned Parenthood's influence. Planned Parenthood is the abortion Goliath. They are the ones leading all of the efforts. Anytime there's a pro-life law passed, guess who files the injunction or lawsuit? Planned Parenthood. Anytime anything happens in abortion in this country, Planned Parenthood is there. Nay, Rao, now, all of them, they're nothing compared to Planned Parenthood. In fact, they all hate Planned Parenthood. It's fascinating how our movement works. You have to end Planned Parenthood's influence. You have to talk about Planned Parenthood. Look, talking about Planned Parenthood actually works. On college campuses this semester, within three minutes, we were able to transform 50% of pro-Planned Parenthood students into anti-Planned Parenthood students. And we didn't even have to make an argument about abortion. All we did was tell them, this is, this is the scope of services Planned Parenthood provides. Here's the scope of services that fairly qualified health centers, the more than 8,000 fairly qualified health centers provide. Oh, did you know these FQHCs serve more than 21 million men, women, children? Planned Parenthood says they serve 2 million, but that's actually inflated. Did you know the average cost to the taxpayer is $40 more per patient at Planned Parenthood versus a federally qualified health center. All you have to do is show people that there's an alternative that actually provides a full range of care that isn't a major political contributor. Even pro-choice people, even people who disagree with us about the, the morality of abortion, agree that taxpayer dollars should go to federally qualified health centers because they're, they're, un, they're not biased. They're not a Washington, they're not one of the biggest lobbyists here in Washington. They didn't brag, you know, FQHCs did not put $50 million in the 2018 election like Planned Parenthood did. Even pro-choice people understand that's kind of icky. That this government agency receives this money from us and then puts money back into the pockets of the politicians that vote for them. Everyone gets that that's kind of icky. That's not good. By three to one margin in our poll in January, I mentioned earlier, by three to one margin, we had millennials saying tax dollars should flow to FQHCs versus Planned Parenthood. And that was simply by just telling them what FQHCs are. It's common sense. But you can't shy away from it. I hear a lot of people in Washington sometimes are like, you can't talk about Planned Parenthood. They have a good name, ID. Talk about Planned Parenthood. Don't, you know, be that annoying person. Where's your defund Planned Parenthood shirt? I need to go fund yourself Planned Parenthood shirts. I have go fund yourself bumper stickers, but I need a shirt. Keep talking about this issue. Once you envision it, once you start living it out on your campus to transform your campuses, and you keep talking about the abortion life, you keep attacking the abortion alive, you're going to be a full-fledged activist for life. And that's what we want. That's what we need. Because in order to be this post-war generation, we need every single one of you involved. We need you to be little Davids. Right? Be those little David versus Goliaths on your campus. There's a book... Um, Malcolm Gladwell, he wrote The Tipping Point. You ever hear that book? It's like a manager book. You will one day. Um, but he wrote another book called David and Goliath. And I'm a millennial too. I don't read books. I just watch TED Talks. I'll admit it. I'm comfortable enough in my position to admit it. Um, and so it was interesting. I was watching the TED Talk about David versus Goliath. And it kind of reminds me of that tourist or the tourist and the hair battle where, you know, David is this perceived underdog going into the fight. And once again, we're the underdog. Um, Goliath is this huge giant. No one will challenge him. And so Malcolm Gladwell, he, he was studying the actual historical fight 
came out with archaeologists, historians. They went to where they believed the fight transpired. Um, but, but his premise of his book was that we think of David versus Goliath as a rarity. That it's a million to one shot that a David will defeat a Goliath. But what he found is, and he kind of studied David versus Goliath's fights throughout history, starting with the original one, then he went to some other ones. What he found is that when Davids fight like a David, when Davids fight like David, you can win about 60% of the time. Your odds dramatically improve. But you have to fight like a David. You can't fight like a Goliath. What does that mean? Well, he looked at what actually happened in the Bible. How David, what did he, what did he do? The first thing David did in the Bible is he transformed the rules of the game. He refused the armor and the sword, the traditional fighting weapons. He stuck with his slingshot and his stones. He didn't wait for the Goliath to come to him. He was the aggressor. There's all kinds of things that he, that he was able to do. He rushed forward, which, but with Goliath being a giant, it was hard for him to rush forward. He was the advancer in the fight. He didn't wait for the fight to come to him. He went to the fight. He changed the rules of the game. He thought creatively about how to, how to defeat this Goliath. He rushed forward into the fight, but he also substituted effort for ability. Knowing he wasn't the most well-trained warrior, he put more effort into it. That's what we're called to be as little tortoises in this fight. We have to substitute effort for ability because we're not going to be the most well-trained spokespeople. I go to college campuses all the time and sometimes like, I'm like, oh crap, I don't know how I'm going to answer that question. I'm always learning. Or I'll watch the tape and I'm like, oh, you idiot. You should have said this, you know. You always have to hone your skill. You're always going to want to do better. You can't let that fear of not knowing every answer, that fear of not you know, being that new person, keep you from speaking out. You have to be willing to learn, put in the time. You have to be willing to rush forward and not let the battle come to you, to be proactive. You have to be willing to get creative and think about how you're going to win this battle whether it's on your college campus or whether it's here in Washington, D.C., a piece of legislation. How are you going to think about this in a way that no one else has thought about before? Are you willing to fail? Are you willing to, like, fail and learn something and grow? You've got to be a courageous David because you, we are the tortoise, and the hare is woken up. The hare knows it's losing. I mean, they're, they're freaking crazy now. I'm surprised there's like not Handsmaid's Tale like at the DCA mall at the um, little kiosk for all the souvenirs. Because like every time I'm here, all I see is Handsmaid's Tale costumes. That's like the new thing. They're crazy. They're crazy for abortion. Why? Because so many of them have had abortions. So many of them have had abortions. That's why they're crazy for abortion. That's actually why you need to show grace when you're debating someone who's pro-abortion or rapidly pro-abortion. Because of those people who are clawing at the Supreme Court doors, I'd, I'd risk my entire year's paycheck to tell you they're probably post-abortion. Because they're hurting inside. Because they've chosen abortion. So anyone saying that uh, abortion is wrong means they're saying that they were wrong. But the hair's woken up, and they're going to give everything they've got to this fight. The question is, are you going to be ready? We're winning. We are winning this fight, women. Like, we are winning. But will we actually win? Will we cross the finish line? That's going to be up to you guys. All right, we have time for questions.
Just like last time. If you have questions on what I said, I usually make about 25% of the room angry with me. Um, questions about arguments you've heard, uh, you didn't know how to answer, things like that. I'd be happy to answer those. Hi, I'm Angie. I go to Concordia University in Nebraska. Um, and this is a discussion I've had with a lot of my conservative female friends lately. Um, the issue of over-the-counter birth control, which has been um, touted by Republicans um, for a while now, hoping that it would reduce abortions. Um, despite bipartisan support from voters, Democrats will never support it because Planned Parenthood doesn't support it. Um, but do you think this is something that conservatives should um, kind of use as a strategy going forward to change the messaging that um, Republicans and pro-lifers don't support women and they just want to regulate their bodies or? No, I don't. Um, one, because we know birth control actually doesn't reduce abortions. Last summer, we passed the British Pregnancy Advisory Service. They're the largest abortion vendor in the UK, um, came out uh, with a study about why women in the UK choose abortions. Um, they found that the vast majority of women who choose abortions were actually using birth control at the time they became pregnant. They still chose abortion, and the, the BPAS executive director actually said that women need abortion because abortion is birth control. Um, so no, I actually don't think making birth control over the counter will reduce abortions at all. Um, I also don't think that um, providing potentially carcinogenic drugs to women Drugs that suppress a normal uh, function of my body. I actually think it's very, I think birth control, hormonal birth control is actually very anti-feminist. Um, because I can do something that half the world's population can't do. I can gestate, and I can lactate, and I can menstruate. Like, we do things that men can never do with our bodies. And I actually think it's incredibly anti-feminist to say that I have to ingest a potentially car a carcinogenic drug in my body for years in order for me to live my life as I see fit, in order for me to be equal to my husband. I am equal to my husband simply because I am, not because I'm taking a potentially carcinogenic drug. So I don't think that that will be helpful. And further, at the end of the day, because you oppose abortion, they're always going to say you're anti-woman. We see this sometimes on college campuses where Students for Life groups will um, start getting involved in other social justice causes. I did the same thing when I ran my Students for Life group uh, before we were an actual organization. I did stuff on the genocide of Darfur. And I, my, my idea was, okay, well, the Students for Life group will partner with the Political Awareness Society and we'll do things on Darfur. And it'll show people that we care more, that we, we also care about people who are born, not just people who are pre-born. Uh, but at the end of the day, they still hate me. Why? Because I was advocating against abortion. Um, I think this is a big challenge that pro-life students face is uh, sometimes students for life groups or pro-life groups will want to take on 20 different issues uh, in order to show everybody that they love everybody, uh, that they're, you know, their whole life or they're truly pro-life. But at the end of the day, they're a pretty ineffective club because only you know, a tenth or twentieth of their time is actually committed uh, to erasing the injustice of abortion. I believe if something is the greatest you know, injustice of our life, it should, it, it's deserving of its own movement. It's deserving of its own clubs. Does that help answer your question? Yeah, thank you. I, yeah, honestly, I think it's a misguided attempt, but they're still gonna hate you at the end of the day. Hi, my name is Rose. I go to University of Richmond. Um, so my question is kind of whenever someone brings up the argument that um, if um, Roe v. Wade's overturned that uh, women will start to um, give themselves sure. abortions and it will like harm them even more. Like how do you go about responding to that? That's actually not true, right? So our whole fall tour this semester and the fall will be on this issue. There is a myth that uh, Roe versus Wade's needed because there's going to be so many desperate women, they're going to be self-aborting and they're going to die. That's, the myth is that's what happened before Roe versus Wade. That's actually not true. In 1958, Mary Calderon, the director, medical director of Planned Parenthood, stated that 90%, and this is 1958, stated that 90% of abortions were being performed uh, by doctors in good standing. 90%. 90%. 
1965 or 66, a statistician, Christopher Teets, who Planned Parenthood in the 1970s gave their most prestigious award to, uh, said that the number of deaths from illegal abortions was about 500, less than 500 in a year. Why? Because the invention of penicillin, because the biggest risk for death from illegal abortions and still from abortions today is, you know, a foot is left inside of you, a piece of placenta is left inside of you, infection, sepsis. Um, with the invention of penicillin in the 1940s, um, that kind of erased that major concern. Um, so in the 19, late 1960s, you heard this argument, tens of thousands of women are dying a year from illegal abortions. It's actually not true. Bernard Nathanson, the co-founder of NARAL Pro-Choice America, uh, who was an abortionist in New York State, um, he actually admitted to making up that statistic with Larry Ladder, the other co-founder of NARAL. Once again, two men, by the way, in case you, you know, gender suddenly matters. Um, two men found the name of pro-choice America. Um, they're the ones who made up that lie that 10,000 women a year were dying from illegal abortion. So when you hear those stats, those stats are patently wrong, and you can use Planned Parenthood's own medical director, Mary Calderon, admitting to the actual numbers of, of deaths that were happening. In 1972, there were actually more deaths attributed to women from legal abortions than illegal abortions, according to the CDC. So those numbers are just wrong, and they're quite honestly, they're used as scare tactics. The other issue you'll hear is, well, if Roe's overturned, women are going to be put in jail. That's actually not the case. There's only like two cases in the early 1900s where women were actually charged with abortion. One never went to jail, one did for a short term time in like Pennsylvania. But that's, that's it. Like, there's no other cases of women going to jail because the purpose of these anti-abortion laws was to put the abortionist in jail. And that often it was the abortionist who would actually, so the abortionist would get caught, the abortionist would name the patient they had committed the abortion on in order to bring them to the court to gain sympathy. So that's what happened in 1968, which was the last prosecuted case of a notorious abortionist in Oregon. She actually gave up the names of her patients uh, in order to try to um, reduce her sentence. So that has never been the case in the pro-life movement. That's never been the case in America that, you know, if Roe was overturned, women would be sent to jail for having abortion. That's never been our MO or our objective uh, because we see her as the second victim of the abortion industry. Does that help? Yeah. Okay. Sorry, I'm like trying to answer a bunch of things. That Hi, my name is Madeline Stefan. I go to James Madison High School in Vienna, Virginia, which, as you may know, is a very liberal area. And I come from a very pro-choice family, so I'm still trying to figure out the nuances of the pro-life movement. Um, so I wanted to ask a question in sort of two parts. So the first is, sometimes a baby in the womb dies naturally. Mm -hmm. What do you think of having it surgically removed then? That's not an abortion. Okay. And the, the, in abortion, the question is intent, right? What is your intent? It's the same thing with like life of the mother situations. Is the physician's attempt to, you know, serve two patients or is it to serve one? So if a, if a child has died in the womb, uh, going in and having a DNC procedure done as opposed to having her birth the, the dead child through a natural, you know, more natural miscarriage, um, that's not considered an abortion by the pro-life movement because you're not you're not actively going in and ending the life of a human being. Abortion is when you actively go in and end the life of a human being. When, you have, when your success is a dead human being, that's an abortion. And then sort of continuing on that with ectopic pregnancies? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um. So ectopic pregnancy is a very dangerous, you know, so that is, so that's, it, most conceptions occur in the fallopian tube, right? The egg is released, sperm travels up the fallopian tube, Conception occurs. Conception is when sperm and egg unite, and I have to explain this all the time on college campuses. That's actually when a unique whole living human being is formed. At no other point in the pregnancy can you say that. Like that is when a new, completely new set of DNA that's never existed before and will never exist again happens. Now in the late 60s, ACOG, American College of Obstetrician and Gynecologists, changed the definition of pregnancy from conception, hemophobian to, to implantation. That allows for birth control and IVF to go on without being called abortion. But it does kill human beings. Um, but that's another speech. So when you're talking about full, you know, tubal pregnancies, these are very dangerous, right? Because what's happened is 
conceptions occur, but instead of the embryo traveling down and planting into the uterine wall for nourishment and growth, the embryo implants into the fallopian tube. This will, there's no way for a child to grow in the fallopian tube, and what happens is at birth, she, the mother will, can die of internal bleeding, and the child always dies. That's not considered an abortion by the pro-life movement. Um, I would argue that if and when artificial wombs are developed, uh, which you know, gay men across the world are seeking that uh, technology, um, that the pro-life response when artificial wombs would be developed would be fine. Take the embryo and then plant the embryo into an artificial womb and give the child a chance to grow. But I have a doctor friend who is out at Berkeley and she, they've tried to surgically remove the embryo from the fallopian tube and implant in the uterine wall, and there's never been a successful case yet. Thank you. Yeah. And by the way, the laws that are passed, that are passed in Alabama and Georgia, they all allow for a life of a mother exception. They all allow for a life of a mother. Hi, my name is Renee. I go to Biola University in California. So my question, it, actually what you just mentioned about the state's laws, I'd love to know what you think of the incremental changes of legislation. Um, and then also, I come from a conservative Christian university, so it's not as if abortion is not a problem on campus, but it's um, it's more agreed upon there, a pro-life pro argument. What are things we can be doing on our campus or in our community um, as a pro-life? Yeah, you guys are in Orange County. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot you can do in your community. I've never met a Biola student to help pray in front of one of the abortion facilities. I mean, you guys had the biggest manufacturer of the baby body parts, the biggest buyer and seller was right there in Orange County. There's a lot you can do in your community. I would actually challenge you, what is your campus policy? We just had a win at Liberty. It took us about five years at Liberty University, Christian private school. Uh, girls who became pregnant wouldn't be allowed to live in the dorms anymore. So we were finding girls with Liberty University sweatshirts going into the Planned Parenthood saying, I can't have my baby, I can't get kicked out of school. Uh, and so it took years, the Students for Life group, it was the administration, they didn't care, so we got the Students for Life group with the Student Government Association to work together to change the policy. So now she can remain in the dorms that semester and then the school will allow her to move into married family housing after with her child, which is huge. But this is a huge problem. I actually am more critical of Christian schools because I think it's, Everyone knows at Christian school, if you become pregnant, they're smaller. Um, you know, what I think we need to keep in mind is pregnancy is not a sin. Premarital sex might be a sin, depending on your religious background, but pregnancy is never a sin. Uh, and we need to stop treating pregnancy like a sin. But for so many Christian universities, they don't know how to deal with the problem because they don't want to look like they're encouraging it. But at the same time, it's like, well, it's happening. What are you doing to show that you're a supportive university? And I actually think most of our Christian universities do a really shitty job of that. I have known and met so many former Christians. Uh, be, they were former Christians because it was their Christian parents who took them to have the abortion. So I would challenge you, what is Biola doing uh, for pregnant parenting students? Because that really is something that Christian universities should be leading on. Like, you know, they should be fighting over, you know, stepping over themselves to prove they care about pregnant women more. Because that's really, we're doing a half a million dollar research study right now on women 29 to 20 who are mushy middle abortion. What we're finding in the study, and we're only in phase two or four phases, is that by and large, women don't like abortion. They refer to it as killing and murder and bad, evil, and wrong. But they don't like pro-life. Why? Because they see pro-life as not caring. We have to show her that we care more. That's what we like conservative policies. I'm working on a speaking tour with Governor Walker and it's you know all about why conservative policies care more. We love you more. That's why we care about all of these policies, you know. Um, the state legislation, um, yeah, I mean I think incrementalism has saved a lot of lives. And I think it's important. It, there, there's a whole, you know, moral question, the pro-life movement, right? Of do you advocate for banning all abortions? Um, and if you advocate for banning only certain types of abortions, you're leaving other children on the table to die. I'm about saving as many people as possible 
as I can. I, I think of it as, you know, if I were in Germany, I would want to be one of those people that said, how many people can I fit in my basement? How many people can I fit in my attic? Let's cram, you know, every single space I have in my house to stop, to stop this group of people from entering the concentration camp, knowing you're not going to be able to fill your house with everyone. Hi, my name is Eden. I go to Civil Friends High School here in DC. And my question is about infanticide. Um, do you think that um, as the left becomes more radical in its position on abortion, you think that it makes their platform stronger, or do you think that it alienates its own supporters by exposing the trajectory? It actually alienates their own supporters. About a third of Democratic voters aren't in line with the current Democratic candidates or president. That's actually where we're going to be focusing a group called Susan B. Anthony List. That's actually who we're going to be focusing on the campaigns, is educating Democrats about how out of touch these candidates are. And really, why are they out of touch? Like, they're going after Joe Biden for not being extreme enough on abortion because Planned Parenthood, they're the biggest funder. It's all about the money. It's follow the money. It's all about the money. So President Trump and his administration has already said that, like, they're going to talk about late-term abortion. It's going to be one of the key abortion issues in the election. Um, and that's a very, very good thing for us. Thank you. That's all the time we have for questions. Can we get one more round of applause for Kristen? You guys can um, email me. I'll give you my email address. I might not be the one to respond, but Andrew will respond, uh, or, or somebody else on our team. Uh, my email is just Kristen at studentsforlife.org, K-R-I-S-T-A-N. If you have other questions or something privately, um, don't forget, I have a podcast explicitly pro-life. Um, you'll find out why it's explicitly pro-life. Um, but make sure you subscribe to that, and there's lots more talking points. Thanks, guys.